Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today I explore the history, rituals, and religious observances associated with the holy month of Ramadan. I think many non-Muslims, like myself, only have a very vague sense of Ramadan. So I am joined by Zara El-Jabri, who will help to demystify and bring greater understanding to Ramadan and how some of its rituals, like fasting, relate to Islam as a whole. Zara is a spiritual coach, award-winning entrepreneur, wife, and mother of four. She has been engaged in uplifting the Muslim community her entire career, beginning as a civil rights attorney. Zara won the prestigious Archibald Bush Fellowship for her community work in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and she is the CEO of Practical Muslim and the author of Before I Do, 150 plus questions Muslims should ask before marriage. In our conversation, we discuss the origins of Ramadan, its myriad customs, and its shifting position in the calendar year. We discuss Zara's experience as a Muslim woman in the West, including how she uses the fourth pillar of Islam, fasting, to master not only her body, but also her mind and spirit. We address Islamophobia, Islam and women's rights, Sharia law, and the utility of Abrahamic religions. And we discuss Zara's work empowering Muslims to apply the spirit of Islam into their day-to-day life. Before we get into the conversation, if you want more information on the physical and spiritual benefits of fasting, you'll find integrative and functional medicine-based programs with doctors like Sarah Gottfried, Kara Fitzgerald, and Mark Hyman on topics such as fasting, gut health, longevity, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition in Commune's course library. You can sign up for 14 days of free all access, including more than 100 courses on health, spirituality, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. Okay, well, I found this conversation to be fascinating, and I'm very grateful to Zara for her willingness to have the thorny conversations that I think can bring about greater understanding across faiths. So without further delay, I present to you, Zara Al-Jabri. All right, Zara, thank you so much. It's so great to be with you. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the holy month of Ramadan is quickly approaching, and I'm really excited to explore the history and the rituals and the various traditions of religious observance associated with Ramadan, because you know, I think many non-Muslims, particularly in the West, they might have a vague sense of Ramadan, but don't really understand it. So I'm hoping you can help us uh, you know, demystify and bring greater understanding to this uh, tradition, which is, I think, somewhere around 1,400 years old at this juncture. Um, yes. Um, but and perhaps as a, just a, a way to scaffold our conversation, you can provide a little bit 
of your personal biography, because I think that that is uh, very applicable to our conversation. So you're currently a practicing Muslim living in California. That much I know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But can you expound a little bit uh, uh, from there? Sure. Yeah. So um, my parents are from Kenya. They immigrated to this country before I was born, um, to the United States, that is. And they settled in Atlanta, Georgia, um, where they had me. Um, They are practicing Muslims from um, in Kenya. In Kenya, the population is about 30 percent Muslim. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, came came here when I was five. We moved, they moved to California. So I grew up in Southern California all my life. I consider myself a Cali girl. Um, and that's where they really established their roots. They were part of the early Muslim immigrant community that established the, the local masjid in our area, which is our house of worship, like a church. So they established that in our area. And um, there was about 50 families, Muslim families that would go to that local masjid. And really the time that you feel the Muslim community is during the month of Ramadan, because that's Mm -hmm. um, from every different culture and background. So where where my parents were and still currently are, um, we we were one of the only um, African families. So the rest were from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, um, and Middle East, right? Egypt, you know, all over the Middle East. And we were the only African, um, African family at the time when I was a kid. Now there's, there, there are more. And the celebration of Ramadan across all the different countries and across all the different, um, ethnicities, um, and languages is very similar for Muslims wherever they are. So celebrating Ramadan in California with this diverse group of immigrant Muslims um, was, was, has always been my fondest memories and something I'm so excited to be sharing with my children now. Mm, Beautiful. Yeah. I know community is a central component to the tradition, you know, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, are you a member of a particular sect of Islam. So I, I think the the sects that we generally hear about are Sunni and Shia, and then I think Alawite to some degree. Do you belong or does do Kenyan Muslims belong mostly to one of those sects? Uh, yeah, mostly to Sunni. So Sunni is mm-hmm. the majority. Um, and so the um, I belong to the Sunni sect. Yes. Got it. But Ramadan is celebrated kind of across all of the different religious sects uh, 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 associated with Islam. Is that right? That's correct. Got it. Okay. So maybe we can start uh, with kind of when Ramadan happens, because this is a source of some confusion for people. Um, because it's like, wait a minute, I thought Ramadan was in April, but wait, but now it's in March, but wait, next year or in two years, it's in February. What's going on there with Ramadan and the calendar. Yes. So Ramadan, um, so in the Islamic calendar, it goes by the lunar calendar. So the lunar moon cycle, two cycles Mm -hmm. of the moon equals a month. And so that lunar calendar compared to the Georgian calendar, which is the, you know, January, February, March, April calendar that we are all currently using is about 13 days shorter. So because of that, Every year, Ramadan moves up about 13 days. 
And mm. so over the span of 30 years, it'll have gone through the entire Georgian calendar. So um, so each year, you know, it's it's uh, it's changing when when its start date is. And because Ramadan is based on a lunar calendar and we can calculate you know, the moon cycles at this point in time with, you know, all sorts of scientific equipment. But many Muslims do like to cite the moon to, to know mm. when the new month starts. So they wait, you know, they go out the night before several nights and are, do we see the moon? Do we see the moon? Once I see the sliver of a new moon, that indicates the next day is going to be the first day of fasting, the first day of Ramadan, and we begin so the major a lot of Muslims now use the calculations, but some still do want to wait and see. But you know, in some areas, like it's cloudy or you couldn't see, and so all of these different things. Right, it's maybe a little more exciting to wait and see. It's like <laughs> not knowing the gender of your child or something like that. You can go out into the night sky, and, and so it, it, essentially, the duration is from one crescent moon to the next. Is that a fair understanding? Yes. Yes. Got it. And this is the ninth month or, or Ramadan happens during the ninth month of the lunar calendar. Is that right? So Ramadan um, is the name of the ninth month um, mm -hmm. in the lunar calendar. Yes. Got it. And, and does it have any, is it grounded in any um, history? Uh, because, you know, again, like I'm like most Americans, I kind of have this vague sense and I hear different things and some of it's just apocryphal and some of it's not. But, um, you know, we hear about the angel Gabriel essentially coming to Muhammad as he was kind of fasting in the cave and sort of delivering um, the Quran, essentially. And uh, now does that um, phenomenon and the timing of that have anything to do with Ramadan? Yes. So Ramadan has always, um, pre-Islam, for the pre-Islam er Arabs, Ramadan was a sacred time. Um, mm -hmm. And during that month, um, the Prophet Muhammad, before he was a prophet, would go to a cave, a nearby cave and seclude himself for you know meditation, reflection, and prayer. And during that month is when he received um, the first revelation. So that's the significance of Ramadan um, for Muslims now still, it was the it was the month in which the Quran was revealed. And the Quran was revealed over 23 years. So that was the first um, few verses that came to the Prophet, um, peace be upon him, through the angel J uh, Gabriel at that time, Jibril in Arabic. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, over the course of the next 23 years, he received all the rest of the verses that compile um, the full Quran. Ah, okay, that's interesting. So, and was this about, this is the beginning of the 7th century, more or less? So, you know, 600, early 600s, is that right? That's right, yes. Yeah, okay. So, one of the interesting things that I started to think through about um, this kind of tension between the lunar calendar and the solar calendar is eventually... Uh, obviously, Ramadan right now is happening, I think, this year um, between the like March 22nd and April 21st, more or less, mm -hmm. depending if there's a crescent moon or not. <laughs> but assuming that we figure that out um, and it's moving earlier in the year. Mm -hmm. So next year, uh, it'll be early March. And then the year after, it'll be probably sneak into February um, in terms of the first day. So the 
um, the window of daylight, at least in the northern hemisphere, is getting smaller, which is probably some reason for uh, excitement <laughs> because the the fasting window essentially is getting smaller. But I started to think about like once, you know, it comes all the way back around and it's like in the middle of the summer, for example, and you live in the northern hemisphere, I actually did a little bit of research and it, it looked like London, for example, like if you were practicing Muslim, uh, observing Ramadan and fasting in London during a summer Ramadan, you would essentially be fasting for almost 18 hours, right? So yes. how do you, um, so maybe this is a good bridge into fasting, uh, but maybe you could unpack the tradition of fasting, um, when you eat, what you eat, when you're not allowed to eat, who's exempted from fasting. Um, because on this show, we talk a lot about the physiological um, benefits of fasting, but this is obviously more in the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Ramadan is a month of fasting where Muslims are commanded by God, all able-bodied Muslims commanded by God to fast from sunrise until sunset. Um, and yes, depending on the time of year and depending on your location on the earth, that those timings are different. They could be very short, uh, short days or very long days. And it does change every year, you know, <laughs> We just finished having, I was in Minnesota when it, I was fasting um, during the summer months and it's even later there. So there were times where it was breaking fast at 9, 9 p.m., 9.30. Um, and then like in the summer in California, you could be breaking your fast, or in the winter in California, you could be breaking your fast at like 5, 5.30. It's just, just like you just skipped lunch. Yeah. So, and there's different rulings, um, religious scholars, you know, if it's the, you know, uh, I, I lived in Norway for six months um wow. and there's times of the year like in norway and iceland and those places where like the sun doesn't set right if you're yeah. far enough north in certain times of the year and so they have um you know religious rulings of like okay just fast for this number of hours and then just break your fast because you know you can't go by the sun where you live so there's those exceptions and then of course there's the the health exceptions mm -hmm. um so first of all you have to be uh, at the age of puberty so that's when children begin fasting when they reach the age of puberty, which is around 12, 13. And then you have to be in good health and in good condition. If you're taking, you know, uh, daily medication or if you, you know, have some other health condition um, that, you know, you need insulin, for example, or whatever, like you are exempt from fasting. So you need to be mm -hmm. healthy, able-bodied, that this is not going to be a harmful, you know, endeavor for you, then you are of those who are required to fast, but if it is going to be a detriment to you, you are exempt and there's no, it's a complete exemption. Obviously fasting is very, very associated um, with Ramadan, but it's also one of the principal five pillars of Islam in general. So you have a lot of practice fasting for the rest of the year. I believe there's something known as the white days, right? Um, so could you talk a little bit more about fasting more generally within, um, within Islam and then maybe touch on some of the other pillars if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah. So, um, the religion of Islam is known as Deen in Arabic, which roughly translate to as a way of life, a whole way to conduct yourself to live your life. And so there's a there are 
guidelines in Islam for everything. So this includes eating. And the Prophet, peace be upon him, um, is reported to have said, and Muslims draw from two sources of knowledge for our for our Islamic understanding, and that is the Quran, which we believe is the word of God revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, similar to the Torah and the Bible, um, and then what the the Prophet, peace be upon him, did and said, which was recorded by his companions as a kind of living example of like, well, how do we apply these the the word of God and what does it actually look like and what does it mean? Right. Is that the hadith? That's the hadith. Yes. A hadith. Okay. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> So Working have, on my pronunciation still. Yeah, very good. <laughs> um, so we have the hadith of the prophet where he says, you know, those who are in control of their stomach are in control of their religion. So there's this link between mm. your self-mastery of, you know, your physical hunger and, you know, kind of self-mastery of your, um, you know, the temptations of the world or being in control of your character in a sense. There's other hadith where... Um, the prophet is reported to have said, there is no vessel that God dislikes being filled more than the stomach. And if you must fill it, fill one third with air, one third with water, and one third with food. So mm -hmm. here a very, you know, kind of very health conscious, you know, by today's standards, declaration of how you yeah. should eat. We know that like diaphragm breathing, you know, is the most, um, you, I'm, you talk so much about breath work, right? Mm -hmm. So like fill, have one third of your stomach, have space for air, one third for water and just one third for food. And we also know about how eating less, you know, calorie restriction or that our body, we are, we are overloading our system. So the Prophet ﷺ is reporting this hadith. And, um, and then there's in the Quran, specific guidelines on, you know, meat, for example, what kind of meat we can or cannot eat, and all of these different things, you know, it has to be slaughtered in a certain way, the animal has to be treated with respect, it can't have suffered and all of these different things, you can't eat, mm -hmm. you know, dead, a dead animal that you just find on the ground. Um, and in the Quran's also specifically state, stating like, eat of the good things from the earth. So eating the fruits and vegetables that are, these are our natural diet that God has created for us. So I kind of went around, but this, <laughs> the, the, the food and um, talking about what we can eat, how we can eat is really um, is covered within Islam. And so this idea of fasting is more than just, okay, I'm just staying away for food for these, whatever it is, 14 hours, 18 hours, whatever it is. It is a moment, it is a time to pause and reflect and, and regain kind of that mastery mm. of yourself. So yeah. it's a commanded time to like, you know, not only do we know about, okay, it's a time of detoxifying the body because you're actually fasting, but in this, in this spiritual sense, because there's a lot of spiritual activities associated with that it's allowing you to regain that mastery of yourself um, through your body and through through your spirit. Yeah, it's so interesting. I, mean, I think about fasting a lot in my own life, about trying to distinguish, distinguish between biological need and psychological desire. Mm. And, you know, we have a lot of cravings in life that can lead, honestly, to a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction and comparison and unhappiness. And to be able to actually uh, become more of a witness to your behaviors of like, why am I putting this in my mouth? Is there a bi biological need for this? Or is there just a psychological desire? Like I'm trying to fill 
or assuage some kind of feeling of emptiness or feeling of discontent. And, you know, I, I fast every day um, on a 16-8 protocol, <laughs> through, you know, and I, I will say that it is spiritual. There's a spiritual component to it. There's obviously also a f- physiological component to it for me. But that's always the challenge for me is really being able to pull those things apart of like, what does my body actually truly need? And what does my brain think it needs? And, um, and that is a really worthy exercise because essentially if you can separate yourself from cravings for potato chips or a pint of ice cream or whatever it happens to be, you can probably also separate yourself from the craving to have to check your Instagram every 15 seconds um, or, you know, any other um, vices and peccadillos that, you know, you might have. So it's such a, it's such a worthy um, protocol in so many, so many different ways. I wonder just also, if for you it invokes a sense of of empathy, I suppose, for those who are really needy, who are kind of immiserated by food scarcity, Um, whether or not that's kind of baked into the religious practice, that through fasting you connect with people in need. Yes, um, yes, that is baked in. There's a lot of... um emphasis. There's another Hadith of the Prophet, like food enough, you know, if you if you're served food enough for one, it's actually enough for two. Food for two mm-hmm. is enough for three. So the idea of, you know, not overindulging or there is enough to share or reduce how much you think you need, right? The how much your mind is telling you you need versus <laughs> how much physiologically you actually need. Um, so that is a part of it, especially when we're uh, when we're children, you know, our parents told us, and I'm often telling like you know, consider like when they start complaining during fasting, because when you're young, you're just like, oh, my God, this is so hard. Is it time to eat yet? And you're like, some people don't have food, right? And it is bringing up that point of empathy. Um, But it's really in the Quran, there's a line that says, you know, some people get nothing from their fast, except hunger and thirst, really pointing to that there's a deeper dimension. And so the scholars have said there's three levels of fasting. There's the physical fast, that you get hungry and thirsty, then there's the mental fast, and then there's the spiritual fast. So the mental fast is even fasting from thoughts. Um, and you know, mm. a lot of your yeah. people on yeah. commune can speak to that. And then the spiritual fast is like the fasting of the heart to fast from those um, kind of desires or jealousies or comparisons or, you know, any attachment, right? Uh, detaching right. from the things that our heart may be clinging onto. So it's to get us it's like that first point, because what happens, I'm sure you've experienced, is when you're hungry and you realize, oh, wait, I'm fasting, it it makes you reflect. You just have a moment of reflection when you're going to. So for, for Muslim fasting, I didn't say like we are fasting completely from food and drink, so there's no water. So it's oftentimes, you know, you will in the morning, it'll be like mid morning, 10 a.m. And you'll just naturally like, I'm thirsty. Let me go get a glass of water. You'll fill, I'll fill up my cup and and wait, I'm fasting. And at that point, it gives you an opportunity to be like, okay, I, I can't drink. And like, what else am I fasting from? It helps you. It's like a trigger to allow you to get to those deeper levels. Well, that's a good question. What else are you fasting from uh, during <laughs> during Ramadan? Because it's not just food, right? Yes. Um, so 
You are also fasting from sexual activity. So already in, in Islam, it is you know, forbidden for non-married non couples to have intercourse. So this is even married couples cannot have intercourse during the fasting hours. Um, you're also fasting from, from any gossip, any vain talk, any, you know, all of the major ills and vices. So if people smoke, you're fasting from smoking. Um, it's a time to really detoxify from those major things. And then many Muslims also just add into that, uh, that okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to, you know, watch too much TV, or I'm not going to be on social media. I know many people who take a social mm -hmm. media break during Ramadan as kind of like I'm fasting from social media. So they add in those other things. Hmm. Yeah, maybe we could just touch on some of the actual logistical and, and practical um, sides of it. So, as I understand, there's a there's a pre-dawn meal. And as, is that the suhoor? Is that yes. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so what does that look like? I mean, are you, are you essentially, you know, feasting to, to store up for the day or is it a fairly, you know, um, kind of reduced portion size and, and how do you manage that? Yes. So the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, encouraged us to have that pre-dawn meal and, his practice was to eat a date. So it was very light. Um, for many Muslims though, in this day and age, it has become a feast. It has become, okay, I'm gonna, you know, this fasting is 12 <laughs> hours. Like we wake up, you know, you make pancakes and all of the, all the, all the breakfast foods that you like never usually eat <laughs> during a regular day, but all of a sudden I'm fasting. I got to eat a whole bunch of things. Um, many people do do that. And then when you have, uh, we'll have like Sahur parties, like, okay, we'll all get together and go to IHOP or go to Denny's or something and eat a big Sahur <laughs> together. So it's actually the opposite of what it's supposed to be. But if you want to know like the truth of how Muslims are practicing these days, that is what has happened, which is, Part of the reason, you know, my husband and I um, have a program that's related to to Ramadan and fasting and health and wellness, and it is to bring people back to the the true essence of it. Is like, mm. no, just have water and a date, um, and then yeah, the fast will be hard, but it, uh, you know, like your body is not, cannot store the food for that many hours. Like it's going to digest yeah. it, it goes through. It's just a, a mind game that, like, oh no, let me load up before I fast. Right. And then likewise, and, when you yeah, break fast, uh huh. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please go ahead. Um, the prophet's practice when you break fast was the same thing: to have a very light meal, to break fast on date and milk, um, uh, break your fast, then do the do the prayer, which takes about you know five to ten minutes, and then eat your meal, which um, in his time was just very light, like soup or a, a or something. Or something mm -hmm. like, but again, these days it it is a big feast, and it is a time where people every night are invited to different people's houses because the tradition is that you know if you feed a fasting person, if you are the one to give them the meal that breaks their fast, you get the reward as if you you know of their whole fast. So people are in competition to be like, how many people <laughs> can I feed? Because then I'm multiplying the amount of fasts that I had. Um, so you're invited every night. And people are making, you know, 
fantastic spreads of you know their best their best dishes, um, and it's really a challenge to contain yourself and only eat a little <laughs> right. bit because your stomach shrinks, and then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so full, but I want to eat more. It sounds like um, that this tradition almost, um, you know, conjoins the fasting pillar with the kind of charitable pillar of giving alms, which I know yes. is another of the primary pillars of Islam, right? And, and maybe this would be a good moment for you to maybe just enumerate what those five principal pillars are. Sure, yeah. So the five pillars of Islam are number one, the Shahada, which is the declaration of faith to say, I believe that there is no God except God and that the Prophet Muhammad was his messenger. Um, the second pillar is the pillar of prayer, Salah in Arabic. And that is a command to pray five, di five times a day um, at specific intervals. So sunrise, uh, just before sunrise, pre-dawn, um, at the just after the sun is at its highest point in the sun at the zenith, um, uh, early afternoon prayer, then the sunset prayer, and then the evening prayer. So those five prayers are the second uh, second pillar of Islam. Then Ramadan, the month of fasting, um, again prescribed for everyone who's able-bodied to participate in that month. Then um, then zakat, which is the uh, charity. And charity, the, the specific charity here is that you are to give 2.5% of your um, of your gross income, of your excess income. So mm -hmm. whatever it is <clears throat> that you have to live and survive and pay rent, however much more than that you make, every year donate 2.5%. And that's like a commanded amount of charity. But then beyond mm -hmm. that, Muslims are encouraged to give charity um, um, voluntary charity all the time. And then the final pillar is the pillar of Hajj, which is the pilgrimage that again, every able-bodied and financially able Muslim can make to, um, to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. So to take this physical trip, this journey, and that is at during the month of um, a, a specific month during Ramadan, a specific time that you are, that you go, which is why you may hear of the stories. People are at Hajj. There is a stampede. So many people, 3 million people. It's because we all have to go at that specific time. And um, for countries that have a lot of Muslims, there's even a lottery because everyone wants to go and they cannot send that many people for safety reasons. Sure. H have you embarked on the Hajj in your lifetime? Yes, I have had the Blessed opportunity to go in um, 2018. I think it was 2018. Yes. What was that experience like? Um, it's incredible. It's an incredible <laughs> experience because you, you know, you hear about it for so long when you're a child, like you need to make hudge, you're going to make hudge. It's mimicked off of the um of the off of the prophet Abraham. Uh, yeah, Abraham, Ibrahim, and his wife Hajar. All the rituals that we you do in Hajj are based on things that Hajar and Ibrahim did. Um, so you know that you're like literally walking in their footsteps. For example, when Abraham left Hajar um, and her child in the desert, 
and she was alone and, you know, had nothing. She ran out of food. She ran out of her water. The tradition says that since she ran between two mountains seven times, like looking at the top to see if there was any caravans coming or anything that, you know, she could get to help feed her baby and her, her and her child to survive. Um, and so in the Hajj ritual, we, we are running between those two mountains as part of those as part of the ritual. So it's an incredible experience mm. to be in the place of all of these prophets and then uh, mimic their, the things that they did. And then just remember um, to remember God and reflect on yourself and so many things. Yeah. Um, just to kind of go back to a point that I just found to be really fascinating that uh, around philanthropy and, and altruism, that that 2.5% contribution, charitable contribution, is that actually decreed in the Quran? Uh, that's really fascinating. Yes. So in the Quran, it says to pay your zakat. And uh -huh. it says that very specifically, but then the prophet, peace be upon him, explained that it's 2.5%. And okay. then again, how, how that's calculated, you know, that it's based on, you know, not just your total income, but after, um, it, it's, it's even like what you have in savings. So at, at, in their time, like if women had gold, um, and if the family had, you know, um, acres of palm trees, then whatever was beyond their means, that's the part that we're going to tax at the 2.5%. Got it. Fascinating. So um, is there anything else you want to say specifically about Ramadan? Because I, I'm, I'm really curious about asking you a little bit more about your personal experience of, of being a Muslim woman in the West, but I, I also want to give you an opportunity to, um, to, uh, uh, color the experience of Ramadan in any other, in any way you'd like? Um, I think what else I would just kind of highlight for Muslims, it's really like, it's kind of like our, our Christmas and our Thanksgiving, like rolled into a full month long celebration. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it starts with us sighting the moon, then we get up and we're fasting every day. And like I said, every night you're usually invited somewhere or even if you're not invited your your family is making you know a, a special effort at the at that meal because we've all been fasting um and then at the end of those 30 days and there's different um there's extra prayers that we do and we go to the masjid and do so again at that time of connection and at the end of the 30 days it ends in our religious celebration eid um which um uh, is called Eid al-Fitr, uh, the Eid of breaking fast. And on that day, we wake up early, we get dressed in our best clothes, and we go to usually a community hall because most masjids are not big enough to fit all the people that come because many more people attend the Eid celebration than tend to come to the mosque for regular prayers. Um, so we go to a, some community hall. There's a morning um morning sermon, then we pray in congregation. Um, 
then usually there's like a light breakfast that's served out buffet style and people exchange money. Children are given like crisp $1 bills um, by like all the aunties and uncles all around. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your family gives you an Eid gift, a, you know, a present. So that day kind of is like our, our Christmas. So just for people to like make that connection, like if, if you know a Muslim or if you, and you know that they're, that they are fasting or that Eid is coming up, that it is a significant holiday for them. For mm. us, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I think we we look at other spiritual traditions. Certainly, in Christianity, there's this period of Lent, which we're in right now, which is characterized by fasting, um, also. And, uh, and and we think about these periods as being kind of very austere and ascetic. Um, and, and certainly, there is a component of that. But for Ramadan, there also seems to be something very festive about it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a time for many people, many Muslims, you know, there's varying degree of practice uh, among the Muslim community, just like in any religious faith, there's people who follow and don't follow. Um, but it is one of those um, times where whatever your degree of practice, most people participate in Ramadan in some way. So that adds to the festivity of it. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Well, I hope that uh, yeah, people have a greater understanding uh, of this tradition now and, um, and uh, yeah, just have a little bit more kind of multidimensional understanding of, of what's happening in the Muslim community uh, globally. But also, you know, if you live in the Western world, you know, Ramadan can seem um, like something very strange and foreign. And I hope we've kind of demystified that a little bit. So thank you so much for that. Um, I, I want to maybe shift gears a little bit and just kind of ask you about your own personal experience. So you know, I think it's fair to say kind of in, in the 20th century, there has been a, a rise in some parts of the world in Islamic fundamentalism. And, you know, people in the West, you know, particularly the Western media has tended to paint the Islamic world with kind of a monolithic brush, I would say. And, you know, our experience, at least in the United States, you know, I'm 52 years old, so kind of in the late 70s, kind of my first kind of awareness of Islam was the Iran hostage crisis, right, and the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And then, I guess in the early 90s, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, which then subsequently led to the first Iraq war, of course, 9-11, leading to the second Iraq war, uh, and then the occupation of Afghanistan for 20 some odd years. And, you know, again, you know, the Western media has generally painted Islam as extreme and bent on terrorism. Um, and this has led, honestly, to a lot of uh, Islamophobia uh, in the West. And so I wonder if you could talk about some of the challenges that you have faced being a, a Muslim woman in the West uh, against that historical context. Sure. Um, so for me, uh, I'm going to be turning 40 this year. And um, growing up Muslim, I, I, I lived in the white suburbs of California. So I was one of the very few black um, children at my school and then one of the few Muslim children at my school. 
So I had this knowing and the sense, obviously, that I'm different, that I'm I'm other. And um, one of the, you know, the obvious thing was that I was black. And then the less obvious thing was that I was Muslim. And at that time, I did not cover my hair. So I just, you know, look like a, a little girl <laughs> um, <laughs> running around could, could fit in. Um, and growing up Muslim, you are taught Islam and Islam, the, the, the faith that what it is or what we are taught is that it is one of the Abrahamic faiths. We believe in all of the prophets. We believe in Adam and Noah and, you know, Jacob and Yusuf, all of the prophets, um, um, you know, then obviously Moses and Jesus. And then we believe that Muhammad, peace be upon him, was the was the final prophet and that God has sent down all of these messengers to instruct and teach and guide humanity to believe in only one God, to do righteous works, um, to know that you will be held accountable and these things. And that every scripture that, that God sent down, he sent it with a messenger because you know, you need a guide, you need someone to interpret the scripture for you and show you how to apply it and how to live it. And so as a little girl, I am learning and I, you know, obviously I'm in an American society. So I know a lot about Christianity. I'm witnessing it everywhere. And I'm like, it's not that different. It's very similar that I believe in God. They believe in God. You know, they believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus was an amazing prophet who, you know, was born of the Virgin Mary and did all of these miraculous things. So if it, I, I knew other people saw me as different, but I didn't have the language or the capacity to go out and like explain the theology of Islam to others. But I was like, it's really not that different. Like, you know, whatever. Um, and then that changed for me with 9-11. And 9-11 happened for me when I was um, just about to start college. So I think it was 18 or 19 at that mm. time. <clears throat> um, and that was really the moment, the time for me. I had just put on the headscarf and many Muslims that I knew were taking it off at that time because they were afraid to be labeled as terrorists. And mm. it was then that I began to, and, 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 up until that point, nobody really cared. Nobody really cared. Oh, you're Muslim. Like, I don't know what that is. And I don't care. Like, do you want to go get ice cream? Or are you playing soccer? Like, you know, no, kids aren't talking or we don't, you know, don't talk about politics and religion. So people were not talking about it until 9-11. And that's when things began to shift. It was like, people started asking me questions. I wanted to explain, um, you know, and, and share what it is that it is not that different. It is very similar. And the differences, you know, you can understand them if I explain them to you. And that, that was the moment when also began to be realizing discrimination or paying more attention to religious discrimination in particular, and those things. Um, thankfully for me, I didn't experience any like physical or verbal discrimination intensely firsthand, you know, occasionally drivers flipping, flipping me off on the road or um, yelling across the street, but nothing so direct that it, uh, that it directly impacted me. And still till this day, you know, as I go about the world and navigate the world, I do um, welcome questions about Islam, questions about Muslims, you know, the media, is doing its own thing <laughs> and it's really on like individual citizens i think to 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 check in and you know if you see someone at your school in your office in your work you know and, and they mention something or 
like to not be afraid to have these conversations. I think the idea that we can't talk about religion and politics has harmed us as a society more than it has helped mm. us. And I think that yeah. so much could be done through regular everyday people having these dialogues because there is far more that unites us that we agree upon that we are on the same page about, you know, than than there is that divides us that 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 exasperating these kind of um points of of contention is is a ploy by powers who have different motives. Um mm -hmm. And even the rise of fundamentalism, fundamental Muslims, but also fundamental Christianity, fundamentalism in many different forms is kind of a reflection on that power grab of, of how, can, how can we otherize people? How can we, you know, sow conflict for, for different types of gain? And mm. I think that's something that we should challenge. I mean, if you just even look at, you know, we were talking about Ramadan, we we're talking about the food, like the confusion that the health industry puts out really to kind of subdue a population to just just buy what's in the grocery store and don't come up in arms around what we're actually doing to you. It's kind right. of the same thing, the confusion of the media and this and that and whatever to subdue. Don't ask about what Muslims really think or what's really going on there, or where your oil is coming from or why prices are like this and that. Just it's all chaos and you should just, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, it's simpler to depict the world as good guys versus bad guys, like it's out of a comic book, <laughs> but it's clearly got a lot more nuance. I completely, you know, share your belief uh, around transparency and conversation. I mean, really, conversation is really the the one thing that stands kind of between us and the world that our hearts know is possible. And and I'm I'm really grateful that you're willing to have these conversations. Um, you know, for example, like you know, we've seen some Islamic countries. You know, I think of like Afghanistan, but also, you know, some countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa who have essentially moved away from civil law and toward kind of Sharia law, for example. And, and you know, that can be particularly detrimental to women in those countries. So, you know, we've heard about, you know, women or girls being eliminated from schools and uh, essentially, you know, some forms of Sharia law are, are interpreted to really just treat women as possessions under the sort of the guardianship of men. Um, some women are, you know, prohibited from leaving their house or working outside of their house or leaving without the, um, without their husband, um, you know, et cetera. I mean, we've even seen, you know, more recently, I think last fall, there was a woman in, in Iran, I think her name was Masa Amini, who was, um, who was, you know, uh, captured by the morality police and, uh, and, you know, subsequently beaten to death for a dress code violation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wonder like how you feel about being critical at times, uh, of your own religion. Is, is that something that you feel comfortable with and how do you navigate that way? Uh, that? Cause that's gonna be so difficult. Yeah, well, actually, I don't find it that difficult. It's uh, <laughs> no somehow religion. somehow I believe you. <laughs> you, you, you yeah, there's the religion, there's the mm -hmm. faith, and then there's the people who practice it. Mm -hmm. And 
people are crazy. <laughs> like people have all sorts of issues. People have all sorts of insecurities. People have all sorts of motives. And um, you know, when you see what, you know, what's happening in Afghanistan or in any other country, and you see people trying to restrict, you know, movement or activity or, you know, of 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 either, you know, uh, genders of women or of, you know, different sects of groups. Oh, you're from this tribe or you're from that. That has nothing to do with religion. That's all political and power and money motivated. Um, same way as, you know, we saw in the United States, like with what happened with Roe v. Wade and those things like fundamentalist powers and powers that seek to control and dominate will use what if, if it's a constitution or if it's the Bible, if it's whatever they can use to, you know, wrap their um, their desire for control and power and domination within it to make it seem moral. Oh, it's the morality police. Oh, it's this or that. But that's not what it's about. So I feel the, the, again, that the, the, the ability that us as, a, as, as citizens um, of, of wherever we are to hold and to, to understand that separation and to recognize that you are twisting something, right? You are, you are manipulating in some way for some other purpose and I'm not going to allow that to be a reflection on me or what I think or how I practice. And I'm also not going to allow that for you to claim for it to be something that it's not, because that is not how it was practiced. And if we go back and look at the prophet, peace be upon him's life, um, you know, there was there there were not these horrific mistreatments, even the Sharia law. The prophet was the most lenient in applying that Sharia law. Like there were no beheadings during his time. There were no hands cut off during his time. He could have applied those laws. He did not. So it is very, um, it is, you know, it, it again, it's a ploy of the media to kind of pinpoint, well, that's what their religion says and that's what they're doing because it's not the total truth. Any, any, any fundamentalist, has missed the spirit, right? There's the letter and the spirit of the law, the letter and the spirit of the teaching, the letter, like the spirit takes up a, a larger portion and the spirit of any spiritual religious practice is to be in love and peace and harmony with all things, with mother earth, with each other. So anyone who is in, in violation, anyone who is committing murder, restriction, killing, that is in no way, shape or form at all connected to a a spiritual or faith-based practice you know that is based in an understanding of god mm. beautifully put and and i appreciate that i mean i think one of the problems that i have had uh for example with certain abrahamic religions i particularly point to kind of old testament um adherence is that you know written in scripture is the condoning of you know public stonings fatal public stonings for you know homosexuals or women that have had sex before they got married and you know there doesn't seem to be really any problem with the project of slavery in, in the old testament and even in some parts of the new testament so you know you know i, I look at these books and you know I, they were written inside of a cultural context 
uh, of moral kind of relativism, I would say, where, you know, okay, you know, slavery, something that we find absolutely morally repugnant and, and odious today was accepted as very commonplace in those days. And so we have these books uh, who, whose adherents claim are the kind of quote unquote final word of God. But then we have this tension between separating the better parts of these books, like the spirit, what you say, and then actually what's written in Deuteronomy or Leviticus <laughs> or whatever, which I think we can all agree is, is relatively hateful. And so, you know, this is my problem. This is like what I'm always trying to tease out of the utility of religion. Like, what is the utility of these old books um, if, you know, they really, really are not representative of where we've progressed morally? And uh, I don't know if you have any comment on, on, on that. <laughs> I do. Um, and it's, I mean, it's so great that you're pointing out like the relativity of it because, you know, for, for example, in the time of the prophet, um, peace be upon him, before, before he was revealed everything, like Arabs routinely, if they had a girl, killed, killed the girl immediately, killed and buried like, no, we want boys. So um, mm. daughters were, you know, they were had and they were, and they were killed. And routinely, people were killed for all sorts of infractions. The, the sentence, the common practice of, you know, judgment was death. And so to then have a, a judgment come back, like, okay, you're just gonna stone them for a few stones, or you're just gonna lash, for them was a huge, like, oh, we're not gonna kill them? Like, that was bad. <laughs> you're just gonna lash them. Um, okay. And then even the practice of slavery, slavery is so abhorrent now, particularly in the United States, particularly for how it was practiced against black people um, or Africans, um, because it had never been practiced that way in history before. All slavery, and we're talking about in the time of Moses and, and Jesus and the prophet Muhammad was, okay, you were captured at war or you know you were found off by yourself somewhere, you are my slave, but you could buy your way out. People could come and rescue you. You could, it was never a, it never had the coloring that it d did in the United States, which has now taken, made that term so like abrasive to our ears because the way that it was practiced um you know in the united states made it that black people were a lesser a lesser people lesser being less than human right so um three-fourths of a person and all of that whereas all all um historical practice of it was more of a um a captive of war and you you know it's like a, a work a work i don't know what they call that a works Sort of indentured uh, servitude or something yes. like that. But it's, and I believe that at least in the Jewish faith, that slaves would be freed every seven years. But, you know, my, yes. my knowledge about this stuff is, is pretty mangy. Yeah, it <laughs> never would be that because you're a slave, yeah. your child is a slave. That was never yeah. a thing. So the relativity, like for us in these days, yes, it seems barbaric. These, these practices um, appear barbaric, but for their time, it was more lenient. And now in our time, yes, to see like a country like Afghanistan to go back to it, it is barbaric because it, mm. it doesn't need to be practiced like that, right? Like we, we have advanced, we have progressed. Um, we don't need to uh, apply things in that way. And again, 
in the whole prophetic and Quranic tradition, tremendous amounts of leniency and mercy and forgiveness. Like forgiveness is the the number one, um, you know, part of our religion. We're commanded to ask God for forgiveness, to forgive others, to be practicing forgiveness. And so it is something that there there is a lot to reconcile. I don't know all the answers, but for me, when I see um, those different communities, you know, in the Middle East, applying those laws in today's times, I see it completely out of context. I see it applied, applied wrong. Again, the spirit of the law is not there at all. So that already voids most of it. And then you could go on from there. Yeah, yeah. Does the Quran stipulate that you must follow the five pillars in order to have acceptance into heaven. And and kind of what I'm I'm getting at here is, or maybe you could just play play along with a kind of thought experiment. So um so Christianity, for example, posits this idea that in order to get into heaven you must accept Jesus as your savior and ask him into your life through prayer and acknowledge that he is the son of God and any alternate route will essentially kind of doom you to a state of perdition and eternal punishment and damnation. But, you know, um, you know, and according to that edict, you know, you and I would be fated for a a very long, hot future. (laughs) Um, But I assume uh, you've lost very, very little sleep (laughs) <laughs> uh, over that idea. And, and, and I, I haven't lost any sleep either, but aren't Muslims in some way saying the same thing to non-fidels essentially like, you know, we can be tolerant of your way of life, but you know, sorry, you're not going to be accepted <laughs> into heaven unless, you know, you follow the five pillars of Islam. The, you know, I, I know that this is like, I don't want to overburden you <laughs> with some of these questions, but these are some of the things that are kind of burning on my mind. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So the, the pillar number one is the most significant to believe mm-hmm. that there is only one God. You know, yeah. it, the Shahada in Arabic is la ilaha illallah Muhammadan Rasulullah. And if somebody, um, you know, wanted to embrace the religion of Islam, become Muslim, they make that statement and that statement is all is required to become Muslim. And so Mm -hmm. the belief in one God and that Muhammad was his prophet and that that um, that is coupled with believing in one God, believing in Muhammad, because so much of the learnings and the lessons and the teachings come from Muhammad. So if you don't you know, believe that, then it'll be hard for you to apply what is what is in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Um, however, beyond that, we are strongly encouraged, and I guess you should maybe check with a theologian, but we're <laughs> strongly encouraged, like we cannot pass judgment. We cannot yeah. pass judgment. There's two s- stories that come to mind around this, but um, one thing I'll say before that is that we are also in the Quran, it says that the, the Jews and the Christians are people of the book. They are other faiths who have received a scripture, a book. Um, so they are people of the book. So Muslims can freely marry, um, or the, the men can marry their women, and you know, we can eat from um their food, you know, however Jews and Christians slaughter their animals is considered 
halal that's the right the, yeah, the ritual for Muslims. Yeah. It, um, it meets our standards so we can consume from them so there was there is this um tolerance that is beyond like oh i'm just tolerating you because I'm going to heaven and I don't know what's happening with you guys. It's a tolerance. <laughs> like you believe in God. You, if you believe that there is one God, you are, you know, you're 95% of the way there. Right. And then the rest is in the details. Um, so for, for many Muslims, the, and, and there is no, um, prolust, I can never say that word, prolustercizing. Uh, yeah. Prostatite. <laughs> Proselytizing. Yeah. Yes, no, I've caught the disease. <laughs> Proselytizing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's none of that um, in Islam where we are yeah. not encouraged, uh, you know, told not to. There's no compulsion in religion. Like right. the line in the Quran is like, to you be your way, to me be mine. That leave people to be. Unless there is, you know, they're trying to steal your home, coming at you, like there's, you know, imminent danger. You don't need to be going and trying to convert people or telling them they're wrong. Or whatever, um, everything is between the individual and God, right? It's, it, in Islam, there is no, um, there is no concept of like a priest or a saint who is an intermediary between you and God. Each individual has direct access to God and can make their prayers and um, make the requests of God themselves, ask for, for forgiveness from God themselves. So there's. I mean, you you will encounter Muslims who will, um, and of course, in, in the Middle East and the people who are fundamentalists, they will say that, oh no, you know, anyone who's not Muslim, um, I don't I don't believe that you know they are going to be you know going to heaven or uh, I think they are doomed. You will encounter Muslims who who hold that line of thought, but it is very clear in the Quran that anyone can go and read that Jews and Christians in particular are considered people of the book. Um, and that we cannot pass judgment. And so I want to share, um, a story, if you'll allow me of the Hadith, yeah. um, that, um, there was a prostitute during the time of the prophet, there was a prostitute and, uh, she saw a dog who was, who was hungry and thirsty. And she went down into a well to bring him water and, um, and put the water in, in like her shoe or something and let him drink. And um, the, the prophet is reporting this to his companions. And he's like, for that action, she will be admitted into paradise. Mm. For her kindness, for her compassion, for her care, for this animal, she will be admitted to paradise, even though she is a prostitute, right? So here you have the major sin in Islam of, you know, committing, having sex outside of marriage. Um, and here she's doing it for money and with multiple people. And he's saying that she is, um, she is going to be one of the people of paradise. So again, we, we're, all, we're all taught that story <laughs> to know yeah. that like we can't judge. We can't judge because we don't know a person's faith in their heart. We don't know how they are directly connecting with, with God themselves and feeling that connection in a way and how it moves them in, um, in their life. And that story is particularly like powerful for, for women because there's so many mm. things of oppression and, you know, white supremacy or systemic racism or all of these different things that could put a woman in that position um, where she's, you know, forced into prostitute either by choice or by literal, you know, force. And then to see that there is redemption for her because of her character of how she is.
I think like the trickiest thing is to sort of untangle the politics of religion from the spirituality itself. Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not a, a, a historian, but, you know, if you look back even just like a thousand years now, <laughs> you know, Christians and Muslims have been at each other's throats and it's like the Muslim world was expanding into the Middle East and to Southern Europe and Iberia. And all of a sudden in when I'm, that's probably like 1100, you know, there's these crusades launched by the Latin church. And these are like the most bloody, abhorrent, destructive, death-ridden crusades that go on for hundreds upon hundreds of years, you know, just to sort of recapture some land, which was then subsequently like part of which was recaptured again in Syria, et cetera. And, you know, and then, you know, kind of just fast forward, here we are today, you know, with, I think it's around 2.1 billion Christians, you know, and 1.9 billion Muslims, you know, and, and, politically, it feels like those groups are still at each other's throats. And, and, you know, there's so much propaganda, you know, around essentially, you know, the Christian West and liberalism, you know, versus kind of the dark ages of Islam. And, and, and I think, you know, this is the, the trickiest part is, and I think this is like having these kind of very intimate personal kind of conversations really, does a, is very important for picking out the spiritual components from the political components. Um, and, you know, the more conversations that we can have like this, hopefully the more, the, the sort of greater um, understanding that there can be, uh, you know, across religions uh, around many of the precepts that, that we share uh, around ethics and, and morality. So, um, Anyways, I really appreciate you kind of going into this because it is pretty, pretty thorny. Um, yeah, I, I was hoping that you could also um, talk a little bit about how your faith um, influences the work that you do and maybe talk a little bit about the specific work that you do kind of day to day. And I'll just preface that by saying... Um, I think we met in the context of Marianne Williamson. So uh, I hosted Marianne Williamson up at Commune uh, Topanga at our retreat center up there. And, uh, and I'm a big fan. Of course, Marianne is, a, is an anachronism. She's uh, in an iconoclast. She's a Jewish woman born in Texas who then became sort of a new age Christian thought leader. <laughs> so it's a little bit all over the map. And then here we are um, at that event. Um, and I think that that, is our, that was our original um, point of contact. And uh, so obviously, you know, you have a lot of interest in helping people cultivate their spirituality and in their best self. Um, and so essentially, how do you create that, that unique elixir of bringing your Muslim faith into, you know, elements of personal development and, and self-growth? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's so, um, how we met and all of that is such a beautiful combination for this. Yeah. So, I shared, you know, a, a little bit about my upbringing, grew up in a um, traditional kind of immigrant Muslim um, home, as I now have interacted with many immigrant Muslim um, children. And 
the the learnings that I received were very much focused on like, what are the tenets of our faith? What are the rules and regulations? So like beyond the five pillars, what else are you supposed to do? How exactly do you cover your hair? How, you know, what exactly can you or can you not eat? And I, um, I, I wanted to be a good, a good little Muslim, a good Muslim girl. And so I was trying to follow and adhere to all of these rules and regulations. And I had this understanding that, okay, if I get Islam right, if I do all of my duty to, to God and to my family, I'm a good daughter, I'm a good sister, I'm going to like be able to get the things in life, enjoy life, you know, get married, get the house, you know, have the American dream essentially, right? Get the white picket fence and have a good job and go on vacations and whatever. Um, and as I was advancing in life, um, I got married, um, you know, my husband was a PhD student, then he finished, we got our first job and we're trying to like, okay, now it's time for the house and the car and the thing. And we're feeling like kind of like friction and resistance, like, okay, you know, this is what's supposed to happen next. It's like, we're doing everything right. We're supposed to get these things next. What's going on? Um, and like a, a long windy road, but basically led me deeper into understanding the spirituality of my faith, that I had taken my faith, I had taken Islam as a set of rules, as a checklist, and I was trying to embody the letter of the law, but not the spirit of it. And that that disconnect within me was creating a lot of resentment, like, okay, God, like, you know, why are you leaving me out? Why aren't I getting the stuff? Um, and I wanted to reconcile that. And it led me towards um, new age and secular um, spirituality. And it was from engaging in people like Marianne Williamson, you know, Michael B. Beckwith, um, you know, so many of the people that you have on Commune that I began to see, oh, like they're talking about spirituality, right, from a just a, a spiritual place. But I could see the connection in Islam, but I had not been taught that spiritual aspect of Islam. But I but as soon as they said it, I was like, that's what that verse in the Quran meant or that's what that. Sadith is alluding to. That's how it all connects. Like, oh, I was missing this piece. And when I was able to bring that together for myself, it totally shifted my life. It totally changed things for me, the, the quality and tenor of how I felt, and then also being able to receive and achieve the things that I was trying to achieve. Um, and so the work that I do is kind of twofold. It is for the Muslim community to have that same, to, to be that link for them too, to bring bring up more of the spiritual side so that they can lean into it more because there is a lot of um, tension for Muslims feeling like they have just these, these things that they must adhere to. Hmm. And then also for um, the greater, you know, Western society to understand that Islam is a part of this spiritual discussion. We have, you know, we have the same basic underpinnings and we have our own nuances, you know, our own stories that can add color to this that can support people on their spiritual journey. So to be included in those conversations that are happening in places like Commune or like on Oprah's, you know, Super Soul Sunday and things like that. Mm -hmm. mm, beautiful. And, and I know you and your husband actually do some work together Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about, I believe you do some work in the relationships space. So can you unpack uh, yeah. that and just talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So we um, do coaching. We do spiritual coaching, mindset coaching, relationship coaching. And we have our signature program called Limitless Love, which really guides people 
um, th this program is focused on Muslims, but it guides Muslims through reconnecting with their relationship with themselves, reconnecting with God, and then reconnecting with others in a way that's going to kind of fully in line and integrate themselves um, to be able to appreciate that they were uniquely, uniquely created by God. They have specific gifts, talents, and abilities um, within them that desire to be expressed and that in the pursuit of expressing it will lead to them building up their character and their capacity to be their best selves. And that expression of their best selves is what um, is what is being asked of them and what will lead them to feeling fulfilled and happy and on purpose and the abundance and the peace that they are seeking. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, Kind of as we close up, I was wondering if you could um, teach us a few Arabic words that are used within the Muslim community, because there's a vocabulary I think that gets used that most Westerners are like, oh, you know, don't understand, honestly. So are there like, you know, three or four words or expressions that are used um, kind of between Muslims that you know a westerner might hear um that you could uh, share with us so there could be sort of greater understanding of, of the language and the culture sure yes so the number one expression is the 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 expression of greeting and that is assalamu alaikum which means mm -hmm. may peace and blessings be upon you and the response to that is wa alaikum assalam and unto you as well um so that is like god's ultimate Grace, peace, you know, perfect peace, may that be upon you. So, assalamu alaikum, and then the response, wa alaikum salam. Um, another word that is important to know is Allah. Allah is the Arabic word for God. So, Muslims will, you know, say Allah in place of God. And Allah just means like the the, the source, the deity, the all-knowing, almighty. Um, um, and it is how... God refers to himself in the Quran by that name, Allah. And I'll give you guys one more, or maybe two more, um, is Allahu Akbar, which means God is greater. And that phrase, um, or Allah is the greatest, is used to start the prayer. So when Muslims stand um, to begin their prayer, they say Allahu Akbar and throw their hands back as kind of like, God is greater than, you know, everything I have got going on. And now I'm focused mm -hmm. here on God and, we, you know, we cross our hands over our heart. Um, so Allahu Akbar, God is greater. That one is good to know because it's the one that's most often like teased about in the movies. Like, oh my God, I'm Muslim <laughs> saying Allahu Akbar. That means, you know, an explosion is going to happen. It doesn't. <laughs> it's like a sign of like, you know, you would say it in surprise or like delight of like, oh my God, Allahu Akbar. Like I was, you know, waiting for this, uh, you know, phone call to come or this thing that I got. I'm, you know, I'm so excited. I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final one is inshallah. And inshallah means if God wills. So most Muslims will not like make any future plan or say anything about what's happening in the future without adding the phrase inshallah towards it. So like, you know, for example, when you and I are planning this podcast, I'd say, I'll be there at that time, inshallah. So I'm saying I'll, my commitment is to be there if God wills, the only way I won't be there is if God wills that, you know, something is to happen and I won't be there. So we always say, inshallah, because 
we do not know and we do not um uh and we, and we cannot say for certain hmm. i have one for you yes i think it's shukran right yes. <laughs> which i believe is thank you thank you that's right <laughs> um no and seriously is you're welcome what's your welcome say it again afwan afwan right 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 well i i'm really really grateful to have this conversation zara i've really been um looking forward to it and and you were so flexible as well as plans kind of it changed a lot then that says just a lot for your your grace uh, and your generosity so I, I truly appreciate it um maybe just in closing you could um, let people know where to find you and how to discover your work yeah sure so you could just google my name Zahral Jabri I'm most active on Instagram where my handle is at practical Muslim um, and my website is practicalmuslim.com. Great. Thank you, Zaha. So wonderful to be with you. And uh, hopefully we can continue this conversation. And I, I wish you and everybody out there just an absolutely wonderful Ramadan. And thanks for helping us to understand it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Zara Al-Jabri. Be sure to check out her coaching services at practicalmuslim.com and her book, Before I Do, 150 Plus Questions Muslims Should Ask Before Marriage. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, well, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our best to keep adds to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free, no strings attached, at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, I'm here and feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive variety at Jeff K at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks who make this show possible week over week, including Jake Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the Commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>